It is the 12th of August 2017 at a small venue in Macau. Eleven men dressed fully in black stride onto the stage, the first holding up a golden sphere on a pole, followed by a colorful, scaly, elongated creature held up by the rest of his troop. The ten men holding up the snake-like creature begin to coil themselves into a circle as they lay their prop on the mat. The lights go off, the scales illuminate, and the dragon dance is about to begin. What follows is nothing short of mesmerizing. As the cacophony of drums and cymbals play in the background, the snake-like prop springs to life. Glowing green and pink and red and purple, the dragon twists and turns in the air, swirling inwards and outwards as it chases after the spherical pearl. Amidst the chaos, there is precision, symmetry, and beauty. This is just one of the many ways in which the mythical dragon is portrayed in Chinese culture. And in today's episode, we're going to find out what it truly means to be a dragon. Hello, 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 and you're tuning in to an episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. Happy Chinese New Year, dear listeners, and boy, do I have an episode for you today. As Singaporeans, we are accustomed to the traditions and practices surrounding this festive season. From spring cleaning to lighting firecrackers to family reunion dinners, the Lunar New Year period is a cherished time in Chinese culture, symbolizing both the end of the previous year's hard work as well as the wishing in of prosperity for the year to come. But from an economic standpoint, what is fascinating is the rich treasure trove of cultural beliefs that grace this holiday, none more so perhaps than the Chinese zodiac itself. To those who are unfamiliar, the 12 zodiac signs may seem like just another whimsical cultural fascination, kind of like the western zodiac. Fun to know, but rarely taken too seriously. Yet, just from your zodiac symbol alone, people will be able to make judgments about your fortune, personality, career prospects, and even your love life. And when enough people pass down and buy into these beliefs, then suddenly society starts to feel the consequences. All the way from birth rates to employment statistics to university enrollments to even consumption behavior. Such is the power and influence of these cultural beliefs, which is exactly why we will be looking into this issue. However, while we cook our dumplings and buy our new clothes to usher in the year of the pig, this episode let's take a look at arguably the most famous and influential of the Chinese zodiac symbols, the dragon. More on this after a quick break. 
So, we start off as usual by trying to learn more about the subject matter. To be honest, in terms of uh, zodiac signs, uh, I think most of my knowledge actually comes from uh, when I was younger. That's Dennis Chen, a 1988 Singaporean dragon baby currently working as a consultant in Taipei. So my grandparents did follow them a lot when I was younger, and my parents too. So whatever I learned about zodiac signs was from them. Dennis's experience of how cultural beliefs gets passed down is probably true for almost any community. However, in a country like Singapore, which has a majority of Chinese, it's actually pretty hard to miss. Growing up, I do read the yearly uh, so-called reviews of the zodiac signs, especially during Chinese New Year. I mean, it's very hard to miss them. You can see them all around Singapore. They, you know, they put up uh, boards around Simim Square in the temples, in shopping centers. You know, they show the outline of what to expect for this year. And of course, they have all the basic stats there to remind you that okay, you are actually born in this year, so you should read this board. So you can't you can't go wrong. Right? You will surely know that this this uh, paragraph, this prediction is for you. And this is probably part of the reason why the belief carries on today. As mentioned in the introduction, astrological beliefs such as the zodiac sign intend to make predictions about how your life will go. And when some of these predictions actually come true, that's all the more reason for you to carry that belief. There are a couple of times that I've uh, actually memorized what they have, what I've read because uh, in terms of health, it seems like the zodiac signs, the zodiac predictions that I have uh, really came true for me because uh, apparently dragon babies are quite they have issues with their mouths and with their stomachs and uh, these are the same ailments I have when I'm growing up and I still have them today. So, <laughs> so that's the that's the main fact that I've taken away and that's the reason why I try to take it like you know, I won't brush it off. I will try to read it and then. I won't let it run my life, but I will still memorize what they said for this year. Yeah, and that's the thing about belief. Regardless of whether what you believe is actually true or scientifically proven, it still shapes the way you perceive the world and others around you. And in the case of dragon babies who are fabled to bring luck and fortune, this can often lead to preferential treatment. My grandparents uh, treated me better than the other uh, so-called grandkids they had. So basically, uh, that I was I was told that, and I felt it as well that I was the favorite of the family because I was a dragon baby. But being a dragon baby isn't always a good thing. With the cultural symbol of the dragon dating back thousands of years to a time where the dragon image was used almost exclusively by emperors and the elite, it can often lead to some very lofty expectations even on those who don't really buy into the belief. To be honest, um, I only treat them as like a basis for a joke. And that's a year 2000 dragon baby, who didn't want to reveal his real name, so we're going by his Reddit username, u slash oxysempra. My entire family, both my dad, my mom, my sister, all of them are snakes. And I was supposed to be one. I, I was like supposed to be born in the year February 2001. But I was born in December, two months uh, premature. They like to call me as uh, the snake that could fly. But jokes aside, Oxysempra's experience as a dragon baby was marred by those expectations placed upon him. An experience which I'm sure is not that unfamiliar to many Singaporeans. <music> 
in my mom's side there was uh, there there are only three dragons: my grandfather, my cousin, and me. My grandfather, you know, being the patriarch, is the is like one of the self-made successful businessmen of Singapore. So it's like the expectations is already there. My cousin is a university graduate that is currently pursuing a PhD in education, which is another bar set higher. So growing up, I was, you know, I was like, ah, oh, you, you know, uh, when are you gonna be more like uh, your cousin or co- grandfather? I was compared more to my cousin because I guess the generation gap was not as uh, as huge. So usually it's more about my studies, saying, uh, what's that? What university are you gonna going to? Uh, like, why are you gonna? What are you planning to do in the future? What course you gonna go to? Things like that. It's such. It's to the point that almost every Chinese New Year is if it's not asking about whether I have a girlfriend or not, is this. Oh yeah, and one more thing. They like to refer my grandfather as the head of the dragon, my cousin as the body of the dragon, and me as the tail. <laughs> so I'm like the butt of the family. <laughs> yeah. So in secondary school, you know, maybe because of puberty or whatever, I go into like a rebellious phase. I started to skip school, basically spend my entire time playing my computer games or whatever. And as a result, I think yeah, I flunked my math uh, O levels. Yeah, and you know, flunking math in O levels is basically very bad. However. These expectations are nothing new in our hyper-competitive and capitalistic home of Singapore. Certainly, our parents are always going to be comparing us to the neighbor's kid or our cousins or the smartest kid in school, even when we're not born as dragon babies. So what makes their situation unique then is, number one, the degree of expectation placed upon them because of their so-called dragonness, and number two, the degree of competition. Uh, I think, I can't remember if it was primary school or secondary school, but one of my teachers said that uh, we are unlucky in the sense that we had to compete with basically every other uh, like Chinese students. Uh, like Because compared to say, 2002 or 1998 uh, batch, we have too many people trying to fight for similar positions in uh, various schools and work field. So to us to work harder and all that. Coming up, we take a closer look at the link between cultural belief and behavior, how it manifests in reality, as well as its surprising societal implications which could hopefully explain the competitive plight of the dragon baby. Stay tuned, you're not going to want to miss this. The year is 1976. Abba is dominating the airwaves, Rocky is playing in theaters, and NASA had just unveiled their first space shuttle, the Enterprise. 
In many ways, just like the ABBA song Arrival that you're listening to right now, 1976 marked the birth of several significant facets of life as we know it today. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak co-founded Apple, IBM introduced the first laser printer, and Concorde, the world's first supersonic commercial aircraft, flew its inaugural passenger service. But over in East Asia, something else was just beginning to stir. In Chinese communities across Taiwan, Malaysia, and Singapore, a peculiar cultural phenomenon was being born. Literally. As demographer Daniel M. Goodkind notes in his paper Creating New Traditions in Modern Chinese Populations, 1976 actually marked the first observable instances of the Dragon Year Baby Boom. In Taiwan, the number of births increased by 15.5% over the previous year, while it was 10.7% amongst Malaysian Chinese and 8.3% for Singaporean Chinese. On its face, Goodkind had some initial reservations about the data. After all, nationwide birth statistics were not readily available nor completely accurate during those days, and any sign of a dragon boom might have been hidden in the already high fertility rates during the post-World War II decades. However, there are other reasons to believe that the Dragon Year baby boom was a more recent creation. Modern means of contraception such as pills or condoms were more readily available in the 70s, and improving economic conditions in these areas meant more career opportunities for young couples, thereby placing greater emphasis on family planning and timing births, and leading to drastic overall declines in fertility rates across the region. Yet. Perhaps the most interesting finding is with regards to how cultural belief influences behavior. As Goodkind points out, the behavior of timing dragon births isn't really rooted in astrological tradition. For instance, the famous Chinese farmer's almanac, or Tongshu, states that it is the day and hour of birth, rather than the year, which matters more in determining the fate of a newborn child. And fortune tellers and astrologers were quick to deny any responsibility of the dragon boom when pressed by Goodkind himself. Thus, in spite of the rich tradition and history behind the dragon belief, it is unclear that the belief itself actually leads to behavior. On this point, Goodkind illuminates with the following. Quote, culture is not simply an exogenous determinant of behavior. It is also, in part, an endogenous construction based on local institutional environments and social conditions. In the previous episode on Big Data, we briefly talked about the importance of constraints in how it influences decision-making and our interactions with the world around us. What Goodkind is saying here is that given the right environment and conditions, even your grandma's most superstitious beliefs can become a constraint and consequently manifest itself in reality. 
So, the next question then begs: What are these conditions? We've already mentioned the prominence of modern contraception and expanding economic choices, but the wider historical context is also equally as important. Consider, for instance, the recovery from massive inflation and recession following the oil crisis of 1973, or how China's violent decade of cultural revolution finally ended in 1976, allowing a reprieve for traditional Chinese ideas, beliefs, and culture. In some ways, the birth of the Dragon Year baby boom was coincidental—a sort of right place, right time conflation of improving social conditions and the backlash of Chinese communities seeking to preserve their cherished culture and identity. But from a different angle, you could also see how our relationship with cultural belief was shifting. With the wealth of resources and tools that we have today, we are able to re-embrace and modernize our cultural beliefs in a way never realized before. We are able, for once, to exercise autonomy over them, to adorn our houses with its symbols, and to pick and choose our own fates and identities. As Goodkind puts it. Parents now appear to be using the zodiac as a kind of consumer choice framework. In this sense, they pick and choose the right signs for their children in a similar vein to how they would for their schools or their extracurricular activities. It is, in essence, the commodification of cultural belief, a byproduct of the relative luxuries that we have today. And made all the more poetic because it was born in the same year that Mao Zedong died, a lasting stain on the legacy of a man who once tried to get rid of all of China's culture. But back to Singapore, and while we're not exclusively focused on the issue of demographics and birth rates for this episode, its fascinating history deserves a small mention, as to its undeniable influence in shaping the local conditions that paved the way for the Dragon Year baby boom. Singapore is one of the most densely populated areas in the world. Each square mile accommodates an average of nine thousand people. This is an archival recording of a radio program called ASEAN Half Hour, released back in 1971. It was in the late 50s that the first threats of a soaring birth rate became evident. Something had to be done to muffle the population problem, and so the Family Planning and Population Board was established by an Act of Parliament. In 1966, it was entrusted with the task of implementing the government's population control program. 
Such programs invariably took the form of social campaigns, spread over posters with slogans that read small families enjoy better health or girl or boy too is enough, as well as its contraceptive services made available through public clinics. However, it is worth noting how these campaigns coincided with the changing narrative of the role of women in society led most prominently perhaps by the then-president of the Family Planning and Population Board, Dr. Maggie Lim. In the past, a woman either went on having babies year in and year out and eventually died of hemorrhage after her umpteenth confinement. Or she did not die, but lost her looks and her strength and her spirit. Or the husband and wife lived apart, the woman glad to be rid of the duty of sex while the man sought satisfaction elsewhere. None of these solutions need apply in our present-day society when women are still young at 50, filled with vitality and health, who look forward to the menopause not as the end, but as a new beginning in living. Their potential contribution to society can be not only in the multiplication of numbers, but in the quality of children they produce and are able to bring up. And here she is again in 1963, emphasizing the importance of maternal health and the need for family planning. I've been concerned with family planning for a good number of years, way back since 1949. And the more I've been doing this work, the more I'm convinced that we, this, there is an urgent need for it still in Singapore, particularly um, for the health of the mothers. You see, I work in the clinics, and I'm associated with these women, who come to the antenatal clinics, who bring their children to see me. And it's really amazing how their the, the health can be undermined when they have too many children. The uh, basic needs for health and, and the happiness of the family is the same, whether it's in Singapore or the rest of the world. Aside from these campaigns, there were also numerous economic disincentives against having larger families, such as the reduction of income tax relief to cover only the first three children, or government hospitals raising their fees for giving birth. Furthermore, the Abortion Act of 1974 was amended to allow easier access, and the Voluntary Sterilization Act was also introduced in the same year so that women could undergo sexual sterilization for non-medical reasons. The result of all these family planning efforts? Well, it worked. Almost too well, in fact. Here's Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong at the most recent Dragon Year in 2012. Families are a big part of what home means because families are central to our sense of who we are. And when we say set up home, we mean settle down, have kids, bring up a family. And therefore, Singapore has to be a home where people want to get married, want to have children, want to bring up the next generation. But alas, we are having too few babies. I show you the TFR chart. This is replacement level, 2.1 total fertility rate, which means every woman produces 2.1 kids, replaces herself, her husband, 
and a little bit to Spain. But if you look at what we actually have been able to do from 1975 onwards, we started off there around 2.1, but the trend has been steadily down ever since, coming down to about 1.2 last year and all the way down. There are ups and downs from year to year. The red years are 12 years apart. <laughs> 76, 88, 00, zero and 12. But I cannot imagine the 12 being here. And therefore, we have a problem. And man, what a messy problem it turned out to be. While the Dragon Year baby booms did provide some relief for Singapore's demographic issues, it introduced another set of consequences which was uncovered by four NUS professors in a recent paper titled Dragon Babies. For instance, due to the larger size of the Dragon Baby cohorts, the researchers found that the added competition led to an average of 6.3% lower incomes for Chinese dragons, as well as 3.6% lower incomes for non-Chinese dragons. They noted that since the job market was inflexible to the increased labor supply, this meant that more candidates were effectively competing for the same number of jobs, which resulted in increased scarcity and a good number of graduates heading into the relatively less paying field of self-employment rather than formal work. Moreover, this cohort effect extends into education as well, where the researchers found that it reduced the university admission chances for dragon babies, as well as the application scores from their A-level examinations relative to other cohorts. Other noteworthy findings from the paper include a 2.6% reduced likelihood of having access to credit and a tendency to save a lower proportion of their incomes. So, it appears that contrary to all the hype and superstition surrounding dragon babies and how they're supposed to be blessed with luck and fortune, these findings unfortunately tell a very different story, which provides us with a somewhat somber resolution to our winding deep dive into the dragon belief. Through this episode, we've looked at how belief gets passed down and how expectations can impact an individual, then we examine the mechanism between belief and behavior, as well as the fascinating history and conditions and environments that help shape the dragon year baby boom. And finally, we took it back to Singapore to highlight our own problems with fertility and also how the dragon boom raises its own set of societal issues. If there's one thing I could take away from this whole ordeal, it's that I sure am glad I'm not a dragon baby. And for that matter, I probably wouldn't be too eager to be prime minister dealing with all these problems as well. But in all seriousness, I think what the story of the dragon belief also shows is that you shouldn't be too quick to judge someone's seemingly irrational behaviors. I mean, from the surface, the idea of timing a dragon birth based on superstition seems ludicrous, right? Like, who can honestly believe that you're destined for riches and success just because you were born in a particular year? 
But if you took the time and effort to look a little deeper into the issue, to try and understand the context and the environment of those decisions, then I think what you often will find is that nothing is as straightforward or as black and white as it appears to be. The story of the Dragon Year baby boom itself contains a complicated and tumultuous past, as does Singapore's current issue with falling birth rates. And sometimes, when you go looking for answers or explanations, you might come to find something completely unexpected, but in a good way. In my case, it was discovering the work of Daniel Goodkind and his incredible narrative of cultural traditions, as well as that of Dr. Maggie Lim, whose contributions towards healthcare, family planning, and women's rights in Singapore is groundbreaking, to say the least. And perhaps my favorite finding is learning that individuals are more than just their labels or the expectations or perceptions placed upon them. When I went out looking for guests for this episode, I was specifically looking for dragon babies. What I found were stories that were way more interesting than any label could ever be. Here's you slash Oxysempra again. So in secondary school, you know, maybe because of puberty or whatever, I go into like a rebellious phase. I started to skip school, basically spend my entire time playing my computer games or whatever. And as a result, I think, yeah, I flunked my math uh, O-levels. Yeah, and you know, flunking math in O-levels is basically very bad. So the only poly courses available to me was, uh, I think, just nursing. So after that, I, I, of course, I regretted my decision. So I decided to have a new year, new me, new school, whatever. And I decided to dis- uh, choose to go to a higher NITEC course, which I have been interested in, which is, uh, mm, I'm not sure if I can say it, uh, in cybersecurity. Yes, because, you know, it's a it's an ever-expanding field. There's going to be a high demand for it currently and in the future. So during the higher NITEC, um, I'm currently in, pre- uh, in preparation for my final term, which is the exam term. But uh, prior to that, I studied hard. I worked my way up, especially during the internship, and I managed to score myself a 3.8 GPA. So currently, I'll, I'm offered bond by a company. I am not too sure if I could say the name because it's a, uh, yeah. But basically, they it's it's a it's a good thing, and with that, I I finally had a excuse to give to my relatives who want to know what I'm up to if I'm living up to the dragon, dragon's not. And with that brings the end to today's episode. So, what do you think? Do you love it? Hate it? Was it too long? Not long enough? Did I miss something completely or helped you learn something new? If you have any questions or feedback that you'd like to give, please feel free to send a message on any of the social media links in the description or by email through dcordy at gmail.com. That's d-k-o-o-r-d-i at gmail.com. I really appreciate it. Also, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can help it grow by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, 
or just about any podcast app. Music for this episode was primarily brought to you by Blue Dot Sessions and an assortment of various other artists. And if you're interested, you can find the links to all the tracks used as well as the research material on the website's show notes. Special thanks goes to Dennis Chen and you slash Oxysempra for their guest contributions and to you, dear listeners, for tuning in. This has been your host, Danny, at the Economical Rice Podcast, serving up the grains of capitalism and wishing you a very happy Lunar New Year. Yeah.